I presume you have all read John chapter 7 to prepare your hearts for today. Um, There could be a show of hands and a penalty for those that have not, but I may not be left with too many folk, maybe. So let's assume that um, you haven't read too much of that. I've needed to select certain parts of this because there's just so much there. Uh, Chapter 7 of John is really an amazing story. There's narrative and frustration. There's metaphor and conflict. There's ignorance and prejudice. There's fear, fury and promise. And uh, maybe if you haven't read the chapter, you could read it this week and unwrap some of this for yourself. And there's opportunity to discuss just two of those things today, and I've called them time and eternity, and it's all in the context of fury. Various folk are really angry, upset, mad. Chapter 7 also is that a long central section starts this from John 7 till 10, And it's the final year of Jesus' ministry. Uh, It follows the time of the Passover, which happened um, about six months before this passage, where he fed the 5,000, and then the third Passover, where he was crucified. So we're coming up to a climax in John's Gospel. So let's look then at the next part of the Scripture. Uh, After this, Jesus travelled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea, where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death, but soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters. And Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, where your followers can see your miracles. Can you hear the, the, the... sort of command there, these brothers dictating to Jesus what he should do. Uh, You can't become famous if you hide yourself like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. And of course, Jerusalem was the world. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. I want to come back to that a bit later. Think of that in terms of miracles. It's an amazing comment. Very interesting. Very challenging. Jesus replied, Now is not the right time for me to go. But you can go any time. The world can't hate you. Why not? But it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. I'm not going. Or maybe not yet going. I'm not going to this festival because my time has not yet come. After saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. But after his brothers left for the festival, Jesus also went, though secretly, staying out of public view. Well, there we are. So in the Passover in chapter 6, Jesus did not attend that one. Six months later there was another feast, the Feast of Tabernacles or Shelters, and he was willing to go, but it wasn't time. And look at these words again of Jesus' brothers. Leave here. 
you go to Judea. Your followers can see your miracles there. You can't become famous <laughs> if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. Who are the brothers? Well, it sometimes is surprising to note that Jesus had brothers. Probably they were his natural younger brothers. But some have wondered if they might have... And, and they're saying this because there's this sense of direction to Jesus. You do this. There's almost a command there. And so some have speculated that there were older brothers from an earlier marriage and Joseph's wife's died, but there's no indication in Scripture that that, in fact, is the case. But some have wondered about that. However, Jesus makes a very interesting comment, and I want us to think about the comment that Jesus makes. Let's go to the next slide. It wasn't time. You see, Jesus said, now is not the right time for me to go. You can go any time. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. Have you ever had good advice ignored? Mm-hmm. Maybe one or two of you. I won't ask for a show of hands. Maybe how did it feel when your advice was refused, ignored? Pressures from the family, parents, spouse, siblings, they're pretty real. And sometimes intense do this, do that, act now. And sometimes we feel frustrated, angry, even infuriated. And maybe the brothers felt all of this, but John clarifies one thing that's interesting. He talks about timing. Because the word that Jesus uses, or that John uses as he talks about what Jesus said, is a very interesting word. In John chapter 7, in verse 6, he uses this word, kairos. Now, kairos means opportunity. It's the time when the circumstances are most suitable. It's the psychological moment. It's a time when an opportunity is present that must be grasped because it may never return again. And Jesus who came from eternity and walked into time, was conscious of the significance of time. Now, I want us to think about our understanding of time. I need to make a confession. Time and I do not always agree. <laughs> that would have been no surprise for my confession to my wife, who was frustrated from time to time about this first point I want to make. You see, people can do that. I wonder if you're the person that simply disregards time. The brothers of Jesus, Jesus said to them, you can go any time. Now, why would Jesus say that to his brothers? You can go any time. You see, the point was that timing was not their concern. Any time was okay for them. They had, these brothers, had no new contribution to make. Their attitude was in harmony 
with others around them, in sympathy with the world. There was no risk for the brothers. And what actually is behind the instructions to Jesus to go now? The attitude of these brothers is the attitude of the rebellious world. Any time is okay. They, know, they show no sense of guidance. There's no awareness of God's timing. There's no sensitivity to suitability. There were dangers in traveling south to Jerusalem, and they were dismissed. They were disregarded. And so Jesus gives this verdict. The world cannot hate you. Why not? Because they belong to the world. They're aligned with the world. And the world does not hate its own. There was no sense of time for the brothers. No sense of how it should be used. They disregarded it. They had neither common sense nor intuition nor awareness of God's direction toward them. And that's clear from their motives. And that leads to my second point. You see, if we disregard time, we misuse time. And that's a problem. For some of us, it's a major problem. The belief of the brothers was for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. But for what purpose? You see, they reproached him for staying in the north. That's up where he was, Samaria, that area beyond the north. Maybe they saw Jesus' support diminishing. Maybe it was faltering. Was it mocking? I don't know. I wonder what the aim was. But whatever it was, there was a challenge because they said, if you go, you can use miracles to initiate the spectacular, to show people and increase your popularity. You see, the brothers had this false idea of Jesus' calling. What was he called to do? There was a false idea of glory. They didn't understand. I wonder what they thought of glory. To be popular, to be acclaimed, to be in the limelight. But you see, Jesus' true glory was yet to come. And that glory, I'd like to remind myself and you, was different. It was to be in the cross, the grave, and the resurrection. Miracles had a different purpose. You see, if you look back, John had already clarified a couple of observations about miracles. In chapter 2, verse 23, because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust him. So miracles led to trust. But in verse chapter 4, verse 48, Jesus asked, will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? God is a God of miracles. And miracles can lead to belief. But they can also lead to an incorrect focus. Miracles are no guarantee of faith. But they can also develop an incorrect focus. Jesus' brothers knew about Jesus' miracles. But what was the point? Despite their desire to go, despite their call for more miracles, did they believe? No. Even Jesus' brothers did not believe 
their interest was not in an appropriate use of time. Miracles were not an opportunity to bring glory to God. Look at their reasoning. You can't become famous if you hide. Or, in the NIV, no one hides who wants to become a public figure. Their logic was wrong. It was flawed. There was a misuse of time. The focus of the brothers was on showmanship, publicity, and fame. I saw a quote. Hunger for spectacular signs. Hunger, that's the key word, is the enemy of real faith since it leaves the fallen, self-centered heart untouched and unrebuked. Get the point? It's the focus, it's the attention, and it's not disregarding the, the possibility of miracles being significant in God's purpose. The danger still exists. Time is misused when it's captured to show off, to parade knowledge or power or politicize, to gather followers, to self-promote. These are powerful, attractive things. We've just had an election. And these things feed on human desire to elevate oneself. There have always been human challenges, and it's no different today. In contrast, Jesus asks for followers who will lay down their lives, wash smelly feet, pick up the fallen, followers who will assist the wounded and finance their recovery, seek the lost and lonely, bring light to those in darkness. He asks for those who accept him to be willing to deny themselves, to take up their cross and to follow. So instead of the misuse of time, let's be careful to do this next thing. Let's try to understand time. This kairos, the opportunities that time gives, the opportunity and awareness of potential, of possibility, of purpose. How's your use of time? How well do you use it? Jesus was aware of the right time. As Jesus' followers, we also grow to understand, to become sensitive to the opportunities that time offers. How many of you know of Dr. Benjamin Elijah Mays? Any responses there? You may know his poem. He, he was an African-American born in the Jim Crow South, a repurposed, on a repurposed cotton plantation. He became a graduate, a, a professor, a pastor, a preacher, and a mentor to those involved in justice, including Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., he wrote a short piece about time. Some of you may know it. Here it is. I've only just a minute. Anybody know it? Only 60 seconds in it. Forced upon me, can't refuse it. Didn't seek it, didn't choose it. But it's up to me to use it. I must suffer if I lose it. Give an account if I abuse it. Just a tiny little minute, but eternity is in it. Time contains eternity. And like Jesus, understanding time always includes an awareness of the need for rest as well as activity. 
of time out for refreshment as well as involvement. But whether we are at rest or at top speed or somewhere in between, always remember, our schedule belongs to God. Did you hear what Tina mentioned this morning? The eternal God is our refuge. Our schedule, our time belongs to God. And there's a very clear instruction in Scripture, in case you missed it. Let's look at it. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, every kairos, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. The time to understand, the time to reflect, the time to think, to understand what the Lord's will is in giving us the time that we've got. Just a tiny little minute, but eternity is in it. There are some ideas about the use of time. I want to cover these quite quickly, otherwise I will run out of time and you will accuse me of failing to do the very thing I'm talking about. So look at these things. Here are some suggestions. Note your use of time. For some of you, and for me, it's helpful to keep a record of our time. What's your use of time like? Do you capture it from things that should be used for other purposes? How do you use the time that God has given you? You might make a note of what you're doing in the day and ask yourself whether the way you spend your time reflects the priorities that you say you've got as a follower of Jesus. Second thing, include family. Many of us have major family commitments. My dad travelled a bit. He was involved in various forms of accident and other sorts of home insurance. He took me with him in the car and we travelled. We travelled to different places. My dad used included family in his use of time. And it's something we could well reflect on the way we do it. Maybe there's times to mix family work with work time. Maybe to eat lunch with a family. Maybe not to do go on an errand unless there's a, car, a child with us. Whether you're a parent or a grandparent, there's the possibility of including family in your use of time. You know, it sometimes would be a good thing to ask kids what they would like from you as far as time is concerned. What's important to each one of them? And maybe what needs to change to meet their requests? And maybe this is important in priority. Maybe you need to scale back, as I needed to, on a hobby or a pastime that I enjoy in order to spend more time with family. Maybe to go out with buddies instead of once a week, once a fortnight. Or maybe instead of playing something, take that time to be involved with family. Prioritise. Schedule. Maybe family time. Two or three times a week. Untouchable times. Block out in a calendar the time that God's give you. Plan. Plan those things around. Because, remember this verse. Same verse. Be careful. 
be careful what you do with the tiny minute that has eternity wrapped in it. And now the second part of what I want to talk to you about. But before we get there, John 7 moves on. There was a lot of grumbling, a crowd. Some argued, he's a good man. Others said, nothing but a fraud who deceives the people. All these views, mild views, strong views, adversarial views, the people grumbled, maybe muttered. There was an undercurrent of uncertainty. There was opposition to the Jewish leaders. People were frightened. But no one, verse 13 of John 7, had the courage to speak favorably about him in public, for they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Jewish leaders. The common people intimidated the animosity, hostility, enmity of them towards Jesus. But look, Jesus seems to be fearless. Midway, verse 14, through the festival, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. The people were surprised. How does he know so much? He told them, my message is not my own, it comes from God. But we need to skip past the amazement of the people at the knowledge Jesus possessed about his authority, the controversy about the Sabbath. But before we do all that, we've got to understand something about the feast. So let's note the feast. Because this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jewish festival of shelters, there are three key festivals, Tabernacles, Passover, and Pentecost. And many Jews were obligated to go to Jerusalem at that time. Jesus used the themes linked with those festivals to, in his teaching frequently. This particular one was associated with harvest. It had an agricultural significance. It ran seven to eight days. This was a major feast. It celebrated, commemorated God's care for his supply of food during Israel's time in the wilderness. It had history attached to it. All these things. And in memory of the travel, people constructed temporary dwellings, makeshift huts, leaves and branches. There were two special features, and that occurred every day. There was a water-drawing feature and a lamp-lighting feature. Every day, the priests would draw water in a golden vessel from the pool of Siloam. They processed to the temple where the high priest poured it out at the base of the altar until it overflowed as an offering or libation to God. It was a symbol of life, of rain, and the nourishment. And then there was the, the, the lanterns that were lit, the menorah, lit carried around the temple at night, remembering the people, and people remembered the pillar of fire that guided the Jews on their exit from Egypt. It was a symbol of guidance. These things were all going on. Does that bring echoes in your mind? As Jesus was teaching, the things he spoke about, the things he followed through, and there were thanksgiving prayers. Folk looked back for the rainfall. Folk looked forward to the day when God's Spirit would be poured out. And so we come to the next text that we've got. On the last day, day eight, the end of it all, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood. It was the right time. And shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty, come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit, who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given, 
because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. So it was this last day. There's this time gap. Now Jesus speaks in the temple. And the crowds heard him, and some of them declared, this man is the prophet. We've been expecting him. Others said he's the Messiah. Others said he can't be. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? For the scriptures clearly state that Messiah will be born of the royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where King David was born. And of course, they'd forgotten or ignored or disregarded all the things that were true where Jesus was born. So the crowd was divided about him. Some even wanted him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. The voices, the judgments, the confusion, and behind it all lay the fury of the leaders. What caused the reaction? Look what Jesus had to say. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. The scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. What scriptures? Well, there are several possibilities. Maybe Ezekiel 47. Water flowing from the temple is the image there. And then there was the rock in the wilderness which gave water for the thirsty, the wandering Israelites. And then Jesus spoke of himself as his body being the temple. So what are we to understand? But first of all, remember water speaks of life. We die without water. Throughout history, God's flawed people have failed. The life of God and the life that God offers for us is sometimes discarded for a cheap alternative. And God speaks about this in Jeremiah chapter 2. For my people, he said, have done two evil things. This is the voice of God. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they've dug for themselves cracked cisterns, cracked containers that can hold no water at all. Tremendously challenging, isn't it? There's always the fake, the substitute, the spurious, the counterfeit, and they all involve abandoning God. A substitute may look okay, but it's leaky. It can't hold water, let alone be a river. Back to the text, the real, the genuine, the true. Jesus spoke about the heart. Rivers of living water will flow from his heart. What's his heart? Do you know the word actually means womb? It's the sphere of generation. Flow from his heart. The very basis of what generates life itself. And what's the innermost of a person generate? What is the, his heart? What's the word his refer to? Well, in Greek, it's actually ambiguous. There's no punctuation in Greek. Is it the person or Jesus? But of course, it's true of Jesus. It's because of Jesus that the Spirit was given. And the Spirit himself is the Spirit of Jesus. <clears throat> I will ask the Father, John 14, he will give you another advocate. He will never leave you. But it's also true of us. For the Spirit in us brings life. Water will flow from his heart. And that brings life to quench our thirst, not because of who we are, but because of the deep source, a well of living water that becomes a river. 
And John clarifies the meaning. What's the water? Verse 39, when he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. Do you see how the Old Testament links up with the New Testament? Jesus connects things and events to himself, the brass snake, the manna, the water, the fiery pillar that guided God's people. And now, like the woman at the well from eternity, comes the Holy Spirit. And this is Jesus' gift, the eternal Spirit. Note some things quickly. The Spirit was a Spirit that was promised. Isaiah 44, I'll pour out my water to quench your thirst and to irrigate your parched fields, and I'll pour out my Spirit, says the Lord. Isaiah 44, Jeremiah 31, I will make a new covenant. I will put my instructions, write them on your hearts. I'll be their God. Ezekiel 36, I'll gather you from all nations. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Then you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away. And you will no longer worship idols. I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you, says the Lord. The foundation then, the spirit, did you notice what is said? The spirit had not been given. The spirit was present, but it was not a spirit that was able to indwell. And that waited the time of the glorifying of Jesus. The spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. Acts 2 says this, Now Jesus is exalted to the place of highest honour in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as his promise, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out on us, just as you see and hear today. How it's the extent of the Spirit. Anyone, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. The Spirit will be given to everyone believing in him. Those words are clear. These are Jesus' statements. With justification, redemption, adoption, all the blessings of salvation comes the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's impressive. There's this metaphor of water, streams of water. It's vivid. In a country like Israel, rivers are the source of life. The gift of the Spirit is not miserly, not exclusive, not limiting, generous, abundant. What's the purpose? The purpose that God's Spirit gives is that thirst is quenched. Satisfaction is guaranteed. We find life, purpose, and existence. And then there's a consequence. Did you notice the sequence? A thirst, the act of coming, the choice of believing, the Spirit who comes, and an outcome which overflows. There's enough for the everyone in verse 37. Anyone. Anyone. And if that's not enough, it's for everyone. Verse 39. You see, there's an abundance there's enough of the Spirit that God places within you for anyone. Not a trickle, not a stream, but a river of grace for a generous God. Next. Rivers of living water will flow from his heart. What's generated from your heart? What's generated in your life? What flows from your heart and my heart? There's an old hymn. What shall I give you, Master? You who once died for me, shall I give less 
of what I possess? Or shall I give all to thee? Jesus, my Lord and Saviour, you have given all for me. You once left your home above to die on Calvary. What shall I give you, Master? You have given all for me, not just a part or half of my heart. I will give all to thee. I wonder if that could be your prayer. Not just a part or half of my heart. To capture the time, to capture the moment in time that holds eternity in it. To hold all these things. To use the time that God has given you and by his Holy Spirit to respond to what God wants you to do. A river that overflows touching the lives of other people, not just a trickle, not a stream, a river of grace from a generous God that reaches others. That's the promise. And so God gives us his spirit, not just a part or half of my heart. I will give all to thee. Let me pray. Loving God, Please forgive us for holding to ourselves the river of grace that sometimes should flow out to others from the time that you've given us. Help us to use the minutes and the hours and the time and to respect the potential of eternity that's in these things and to allow the outflowing of the river of grace by your Spirit to others that they might be blessed by us. For your glory. Amen.